Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. We're in for something a little special tonight. In this episode, we're going to be joined by one of the more colorful characters to ever grace Canada's music charts. Our guest is as well-known for his awe-inspiring talents on the fiddle as he is for the strange stories and controversy that's found scattered throughout his 30-year career. If you followed Canadian music in the 90s, you know all about Ashley McIsaac. His 1995 album, Hi, How Are You Today, went double platinum, and in the process, Ashley helped bring about a sort of renaissance for the fiddle and Celtic music genres. But this episode, it's not going to be about Ashley McIsaac's impact on popular music. And it won't be about his various public relations missteps that shocked and appalled many of his more traditional fans. Ashley McIsaac is joining me here on Nighttime to speak publicly for the first time about something very personal and very, very serious to him. As you will soon hear, UFOs are and have been a part of his life since childhood. Now, I don't want to spend too much time setting this up, so we're going to just get into it. I'm going to break this conversation down into two different sections. First, you'll hear Ashley and I talk about his music and his career. And then, you'll hear him share one of the more unique and skin-crawling UFO abduction stories I've ever heard, honestly. So buckle up and get ready for a bumpy ride through the strange world of Ashley McIsaac. I'm going to call the, the episode that I put together, I'm going to call it Ashley McIsaac's Strange World because it's, you know, when, when one looks at, at your story and kind of your history, every bit of it really is is unique and just, I find fascinating everything about your story. But let's start with the basics. So I've always known you as Ashley McIsaac, who is probably the world's best or at least most interesting fiddle player. But for for people listening who aren't familiar with your music, tell tell me a bit about like your musical background and, and you know your career in music, just to set the stage for this. Well, Jordan, you have a little bit of a bias, obviously, to listeners out there. <laughs> You're uh, somebody who's from my home area, Cape Breton Island. Um, I'm from yeah. the industrial side of the island, more up in the towns and the larger what we call cities. I'm from a rural area, yeah. and being from a rural area up near uh, the entrance to the island that are. A bridge called the Cancel Causeway. My little community is uh, somewhere that's a neighboring community to other little communities, and in all of them, there's lots of fiddle players. So the notion that I'm, you know, one of the best, uh, great. That's not necessarily what people out in, in the wider world would necessarily know. And and you know, people have heard of Charlie Daniels, of course, he just passed away, and Mark O'Connor and Joshua Bell in the classical world. There's lots of famous fiddlers and violinists and Itzvac Perlmans. But when it comes to Cape Breton music, I can say I hold my own. So I play a traditional mm-hmm. Scottish music that uh, I learned as a kid. And I learned, I suppose, starting out the music came to me because I was a step dancer. Uh, if you picture river dance and that sort of Irish dancing world, I was 
just one of these small town kids that uh, picked up the local Scottish cultural side of Cape Breton and, and turned it into a music career. Nice. Now, to give a sense to, to listeners who aren't familiar with your career, like just give a sense of how big it actually got. Like I, I know you won, I believe, a few Junos. Like how big was your at, at the kind of the peak of your career? How big was it that it actually got? Well, over time, one thinks of themselves in the world of musicians as, uh, you know, a musician, whether you're playing to 10 people or to a million people, and I've done all and in between. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early 90s, I had an opportunity to put out a record that was successful in Canada and, and caused me to tour in other places. How big does it get? You know, it's, it's really... Uh, all musicians would be, you know, lying if they didn't say... It really doesn't matter. You just go on stage and play music. Um, but reality-wise, yeah, I've had great. I've had great luck. I've toured with well-known artists for years. A fellow by the name of Philip Glass, who's a classical musician that a lot of Americans and people around the world would know as one of the greatest classical composers, uh, especially of our day. And that's opened a lot of doors. And I did tour with that famous Irish group, the Chieftains, so that gave me opportunities. And then my own albums. Uh, have put me into lots of different places that I've played, you know, from Carnegie Hall to, as we say, where I'm from in Cape Breton, West Mabu Hall, which is a little square dance hall. <laughs> nice. Now, there's a, there's a lot of people who are going to be listening to this from outside of Canada that probably don't know what we're talking about when we say a fiddle. Uh, I'm sure you get this question a lot, but can you just give a, a brief explanation of what differentiates a fiddle and fiddle music from you know traditional like violin classical type music. Well, the the notion of the music's being different is pretty much where it comes from. If you say somebody's playing fiddle music, uh, they might be talking more of colloquial musics in in certain parts of the world. So Cajun music in the mm -hmm. south of the states, or uh, mariachi music in Mexico. So the reality is that the instrument is the same. It's a violin. It's a fiddle. It's just mm -hmm. two words for it, like a, a car or automobile. But people tend to classify the music that's played by specific cultural sections, not classical uh, music, let's say, or even jazz music to an extent. Uh, it'll be called a violin. I think I've met as many violinists from symphonies who are famous and you know world famous that like to call what they play fiddle music as much as you hear fiddlers say, I'm a violin player. So it's an interchangeable word. Um, okay, it's like that. Okay, yeah, I, I picture someone with a suit on and you know with a conductor in front of them. They're they're playing the violin, but when Ashley McIsaac has you know his bleached hair and has cigarette hanging out of his mouth and a you know there's strings hanging everywhere, that's the fiddle. That's the way I see it, and, and that's and that's great for me. You know that people do have a, a particular vision of what fiddle or violin is because it, it's easier for people mm -hmm. to classify what you're doing. I do obviously play with symphonies and other things my fiddle but i don't have the cigarette out the mouth and i probably wear a suit so you know everything in between that's one of the natures of, of playing an instrument that's not like an electric guitar or drums it it's yeah. it tends to uh, be very versatile how people will present it and yeah sometimes i probably had a cigarette out the corner of my mouth <laughs> now earlier when i when i was talking about knowing you as who may be the world's best fiddle player, or at least the world's most interesting. Uh, what, what I will say is that people often think of like the fiddle music as really traditional music. And you said so yourself with like, you know, the tunes being passed down for generations and whatnot. But when people think of 
what you do and what you're known for, a lot of people credit you for modernizing fiddle music and bringing it to the mainstream, at least like there was a period in the 90s where you couldn't really go through much music without seeing you know, you with rock background and whatnot playing the fiddle. Like, tell me about your thoughts on pushing the boundaries of that style of music and and how important that was to you or or is to you throughout your career. Well, as I say, I started out as a very uh, traditionally taught musician and you you say much music. Of course, your Canadian audiences, they would know that as our music channel, similar to like a VH1 in in America. And have been, you know, at a point where people did listen to my records solely from having heard of it from popular radio or music videos. It's uh, it's it's been a, a treat. It's allowed me to mm-hmm. perform in settings that aren't the natural places to, let's say, you'd expect to see a fiddle. So that that in itself opened up the eyes of other promoters and concerts and venues to invite other acts similar. But I definitely wasn't the first mm-hmm. to do something like that. There was another well-known band from Cape Breton Island called the Rankin Family, which had also mm-hmm. crossed over into the popular music uh, charts in Canada a couple of years before me, and, and they were an inspiration to me. So people have not usually the ability to watch or, or hear traditional music in that culture, and that's why maybe I've been given a bit of the... The leeway or the title in Canada as, as being a you know a, a provocateur, you know somebody who brought, brought <laughs> something to another state for people to listen to and make it cool. But there's been lots of cool fiddle players over the years, and and really true to to, to form. Um, back to your other question, you know, as far as a career is going to go for a musician, the heights of it you never hope that you've got there. The heights are that you play as long as you can, and mm-hmm. uh, those opportunities are great that are presented by being uh, a popular musician. But culturally, when I'm 80 years old, I'll hopefully be able to still play my traditional music like I heard 80-year-olds nice. play when I was a kid. Good way to look at it. Now, you may debate you know, the, the boundaries that you may or may not have pushed in fiddle music, but one thing that I think you can't really debate is the reputation you've gained along the way as like to put it nicely, the bad boy of fiddling. Like if um, anyone who knows Ashley McIsaac is also familiar with uh, you being a bit of a rock star of of fiddle music. Um, do you think the reputation of you being like kind of like the bad boy of fiddling? Do you think that's called for? Do you see yourself that way? Well, when it comes down to it, you know your performances speak for themselves, and I've done thousands, and so I'm fine with that image. Still, I'm a 45 year old man, you know, and whatever sells tickets, fill your boots. But to me. <laughs> excuse me, making music is about having people listen. So the opportunity to have more people because you have a positive image is one thing, but there's all forms of popular culture out there. When you say I I fit the the notion of bad boy or rock and roll, there's a lot of rock stars just even in our own country, Canadian ones, that I'm sure have been way more a bad boy than myself as a character, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. I, I think I'm... I'm accepting of whatever the image is that people want to parlay onto me as as a performer who makes a living. Yeah. Uh, Of all the the times that you were um, highlighted for something, you you know, bizarre or unique, one thing that I really enjoy and I always go back to is 
your appearance on Conan O'Brien. What what happened there? Can you tell that story from from your point of view? Like I understand you wore a kilt, and you know the camera ended up catching you from a, from a, uh, in a I guess unfortunate angle. But what what actually happened? Well, for the audience out there that would not have ever heard of me, it's one of those concerts that's in the career of, you know, 25 years that stands out and you can still search on YouTube. The oh, yeah. the, the fact of the matter was I was wearing a kilt, as you say. It's just one TV show, and I figured it was a comedy show, and I did my typical river dance, high kick step dancing move, of which a camera did catch, as you said, unfortunate. Some people thought it was fortunate. Uh, an, an angle that showed what's really under a Scotsman's kilt. And so that sort of thing, it's one event, and and it stands out in uh, an image that people have of somebody from, you know, over time when they think of them as a musician. All right, so, so put yourself in our place here. We're doing a live television show. We've done, I think, 700 and some odd of them, 710 yeah. of them, all right? We're sitting here, we thought we'd seen it all. <laughs> this guy's, uh, you know, playing his fiddle out there, leaps into the air, does the split. He's not wearing underwear. <laughs> it was on every camera. We, we did see it And all. you know what, we saw it all. Yeah. And uh, we now have a sign backstage. Yes. Please wear underwear. Yes. On the program. Yes. I couldn't believe it. I he thought, was. He was. Because I'm sitting here. And it, uh, Andy's I, usually reading a magazine during yeah. the music portion of the show, you know, yeah. and you're flipping. And, and you, we all thought we saw something, but it was amazing. It was, it Everybody was, ran back into the booth was, after the show. It was Little Ashley. <laughs> Little Ashley. Yeah, Lil yeah. Ashley. Yeah. yeah, Lil. And uh, L-I apostrophe L. And uh, the, the network standards and practices person had to be, they gave the person oxygen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Just for this. When it all comes down to it, that show was probably one of the tamest in that period of time that I was doing. It just happened to be publicized because yeah. it was on television. There was some strong, strong... Uh, powerful performances I did with a band that I, I toured this successful record with a uh, a pretty heavy set of music to be playing on a fiddle, you know, a, a real cultural, traditional set of music arranged with hard rock. And, and we tore it up in a lot of places. And it was the 90s in Canada. In those days, I did smoke pot. I uh, tried magic mushrooms. I did whatever I would think would give me energy to perform as vigorously like a rock star I thought that I could coming from a traditional background and and just only expecting well this is what a, a rock star does they just play really hard so I did a lot of intense shows and they probably stand out with Canadian audiences more and it's why I still have a career but that particular show yeah that was funny yeah definitely but you've you've like you, you've mentioned already you played a ton of shows but a lot of them were kind of off uh, off the norm like you played at raves and you know all sorts of unique places like what are it, when you look back at your career what are some of the more unique shows you had played i remember in 2004 which isn't that long ago uh but it's still in you know mm -hmm. the terms of a 45 year old man a third of my life ago um i played one evening at the acropolis <laughs> that type of event where you know you're looking at the moon and you're seeing the parthenons and up above and all of a sudden it started to rain and as the rain came down during this performance that was happening during the Greek cultural Olympiad 
a sort of a pre-opening opening show to the Olympic Games in Athens. The rain came down. Everybody brought out umbrellas, and I saw this image of, you know, just something beautiful that that could have happened a thousand years ago. You know, people with umbrellas in the rain out at a concert, and the Parthenon being so old. Images like that. Those are shows that I remember that are cool. Um, but I, I've done shows where I just go to a small town and I feel really comfortable that night, and I'm on the stage and three or four hundred people in a theater, and I'm telling my life story and I'm playing my music. And they could be just as uh, memorable, you know, particularly for the audience as well. So the best show I ever could say that I remember is always when I have the opportunity to play at Carnegie Hall. I've done that now six or seven times with a couple of different events that I got to be part of. So those are always my most exciting. When I get the opportunity to be there, and I've been there maybe three or four times in the last uh, 14 years or so, uh, prior to that when I was young, you know, any opportunity to get to play. But now I'm an adult, and, and I, I like to choose when I can. Obviously, we're in a pandemic now, so there's not as much ability to go out and tour, which is a whole other stage of talking online, speaking to people, trying to keep yourself motivated to know when you can go out and tour again. And it's one of the reasons why I took you up on your offer to, to do an interview with you. Before we get into the next section of the episode, let me just stop and make it clear. Ashley surprised me by how understated he was when talking about himself. His fame, his talents, and the controversy that followed him were all much more heightened than he described. But I'll leave that for you to Google and figure out yourself. I'm too excited to share the next portion of our interview to expand on anything he's said so far. So let's get into it. You'll notice in the next segment, our interview has completely switched gears. Ashley is about to speak publicly for the first time about something he is very passionate about and something very personal to him. We are now about to dive headfirst into Ashley's history and experiences with the UFO phenomenon. You know, it's not my nature to... uh to toot my own horn, except mm-hmm. if it's about music. But if we're going to talk personally, yeah, um, my experiences when it comes to the paranormal have mostly occurred before I was 19. So uh, let's say up until about 94. And when I started working a lot out on the road for three or four years, I didn't have anything like that. My brain was busy focusing and, and dealing with the music I was performing night after night. I did have one phenomenal experience, which I, I mentioned on on a, the Facebook site that you're a moderator of, Jordan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that happened, and, and there was uh, reasons because of the time frame that I, I've always had to question, you know, the actual feelings around that event, whether or not they might have been affected by everything else that was going on at the time. Reality is, though, I've been very fortunate, I think, to have had experiences since I was a young person that are extremely considered, you know, abnormal. Mm -hmm. And then afterwards, as an adult, I've continued to have some, um, some that are quite outrageous. (laughs) And and, and I've been very fortunate. I was raised in Cape Breton in a very free-thinking rural community playing traditional music. And as an adult, I had success, so I've had a lot of time to relax after the yeah. very busy parts of my young life, you know? 
So when when was it that you had your your first experience? Like, and when did you get an interest in like UFOs and you know this these kind of paranormal concepts? From the age of eight or nine, I knew at that point after an experience I had that summer, hey, there's something more than just what is normal. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what you actually saw that that first experience with your with your younger sister? Yeah, in full detail. You know, it's. Uh, as, as I said, and I'm sure your audience knows, you're from Cape Breton Island, and when you come on to Cape Breton Island, there's this causeway, a long bridge. Uh, when you turn left at that bridge, you go down a, a coast, and that coastline is called Route 19. That's where I'm from, small town, and you could go to the beach um, in the summertime within, you know, a five, ten-minute walk. And when you're eight or nine years old, that's one of your favorite things to do in the summers to you know go with your friends, go out at night, go out to the beach, play games. And at one point, we decided uh, we were all going to congregate in the old lady beside my house, her backyard. And for you know a week or so, we used to all hang out there, eight, nine, 10, 12 kids between the ages of eight and 14. And you know she got, she got a little bit she was getting fed up with us wrecking her grass. <laughs> Put it that way. So uh, we ended up over by my house, which was next door, which wasn't a big open field. It was more, you know, there was a house, there was a, a slight incline from the main driveway up to a garage uh, that eventually was built. Um, there was a, a, a turn that came out of our road that went up a long hill, and on the way up there was my neighbor next door and then other houses. Very rural little area by the sea. Mm-hmm. As we uh, were playing a game of what is called um, in the reverse of hide-and-go-seek, something called Ghost in the Graveyard. Okay. We, we were uh, all ready to, to play this game. We maybe had done it a couple of times already. And everybody was to hide, and then uh, somebody was to search for them, sort of you know, the opposite of, of uh, hide-and-seek or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Somebody then was to shout the, the words ghost in the graveyard, and it was my cousin's turn, a fellow by the name of Stevie, I believe. Mm-hmm. As we all looked, he shouted at the top of his lungs, UFO! And everybody, you know, stopped where they were, behind the garage, behind the tree, behind, you know, wherever, at the side of the road, by the car, and started screaming. And I was on this little incline towards where the garage would be, and Beside there was our clothesline and a set of trees that were, you know, maybe 25 feet tall, uh, the highest of them. And I looked, and right above this tree was spinning on an angle at, you know, an unknowable speed because you could just tell there was motion. And it was a pewter, silverish-looking metal that looked, you know, as they say, like the pie tin version of a UFO. Mm-hmm. And underneath it, it had red, green, yellow, blue lights flashing of multicolors going all the way around it in a circle. And in the center of that, a beam. Hmm. And as I stood and looked at this, I thought, oh, my effing God, it's a UFO. And I was very excited. And you got to remember, at that point, uh, little kids all around the world have been seeing about Ethiopia for a couple of years. People were upset. 
people uh, of my age group wondered why kids were starving. Why is the world so horrible? What is this, you know, crazy world? And here all of a sudden I was seeing something that was out of this world. And it just made me feel like, wow, there's something smarter and better than us. Hmm. Now, that's how I took it as a kid because I thought we were doing some pretty bad things as a kid in the world, you know, watching Lebanon blow up in the news or Ethiopian crisis, things that were happening, they were shocking to a young kid. And here was this totally classic image of a UFO right above my head. So my sister, I grabbed by the hand and I, I said, Lisa, come. And we walk up closer, another three or four feet up the incline so we could really see it. All of, you know, five seconds has passed now. And uh, I say, Lisa, remember this. Look at this. This is amazing. And after about another five seconds had passed, so, you know, a total of 10 or 15 seconds have passed, she started to scream and bawl and cry. I said, don't worry, Lisa, it's okay. And I turned around, grabbing her, running into our house, screaming to the parents, we just saw a UFO. My parents were inside going, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So that was the first time that something wow. was so obvious. You know, I'm an eight-year-old kid. I'm with all my other friends. I'm with my sister. And I looked at that, and it made me think about everything that I don't know. And it still today makes me think about everything that I don't know about life and the universe and the world. And what an intriguing, amazing experience to have as a young kid. Yeah, and it seems like immediately almost you found meaning in this where it put put you in context of the world in context of how much pain and misery there is. So it seems like it must have been a really formative experience for you, especially at that age. I would have to say that uh, when I, you know, I live my life, I don't think daily about my situations that are considered paranormal. I live a realistic life as a touring musician. I've been fortunate to get to travel a lot and see lots of parts of the world. But if I have to, I can draw upon it at any single point, at any given moment, in all my touring days from here till I don't have a brain anymore to think, a moment that would forever stand out as being an important uh, way to look at yourself as just being, you know, one mere human on this planet. Yeah. No, I know you had another experience. You wrote about this online. I think you, I think in '96 that seems to be even more intense and up close than that am i getting that right and, and, that, and that's and that's the one jordan that i say it's, it's hard to know because i was touring and mm -hmm. i'm not uh an unintelligent person uh I, but i'm not versed in medical science enough to know the the powers of of persuasion of the brain and what one can actually think and believe is real when maybe it's not so mm -hmm. i always hesitatedly have told people the story that took place that evening with that precursor knowing that you know I was young I was traveling a lot I was smoking pot as I said I'd done magic mushrooms uh, I had different uh, brain chemistry than I would have as a nine-year-old let's say yeah but I was also a very professional touring musician that did hundreds of shows night after night and unlike my image never much of a real party person always kept to myself in my room and did some pot or, or whatever for a show and then went back to my hotel room, ordered a pizza and watched TV and, and never had any, you know, real crazy lifestyle until a certain point where I was outside all of that scene where I took a year off and I did do hard narcotics of which 
I eventually, you know, talked about because it was a great thing for the recovery that took place two years later, and I've been 21 years clean of that. But the experience, the experience that happened in '96 was really weird. Um, and to really tell it in detail and to say it straight out was—I'm sure it's—it's it's not weird to your viewers, so no. or your listeners. I'm sure they hear lots of strange things. I'll just give it as I see it. Hmm. I was in my hotel room after a show, which I had done many, 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 many times. Now, as you say, you know, this is another main experience at a certain time. I had that experience when I was a kid, and a year later, my whole entire community witnessed an enormous fleet of these same things out above our water and watched it for 10, 15 minutes. I'm somebody who believes because I've seen. Um, mm. So it makes me wonder, you know, I'm in my hotel room. I, am I just believing something that is not actually factual? But this is what happened. I went to my hotel room uh, after my show. I went to my bathroom. And to relax after, you know, having played a very intense show, opening for a group called The Odds and The Bare Naked Ladies. There were two, two acts and myself doing this big rock venue. Nice. Um, I was, like normal, going to relax. Went to my Holiday Inn, whatever it was. Uh, put Married With Children on TV. It was the 90s. And uh, went to the bathroom to, you know, put a towel under the door because it wasn't legal yet but to smoke a joint. Mm -hmm. And just to relax. I never drank alcohol. Uh, it was something that I never did as a young person. So when I toured, I, I never had an interest in it, never tried it. It was my standard way of relaxing after a show is to smoke a joint and order a pizza. Real rock star move, you know? Yeah. So uh, there I was in the bathroom. I smoked a joint, and I passed out. So all I can say is that I passed out because mm -hmm. eventually I woke up. And when I woke up, it was an experience that was really dramatic that I visualize like it was yesterday and assume happened and the things that took place afterwards made me feel like it had happened but that's where I'm not sure the image I have was of me and if you were to take your hand and put it out in front of your mouth like you were holding your hand like a you know a cobra towards you I woke up on the floor with my hand then inserted down into my mouth down to my elbow now, if you picture that, that's a real weird thing that somebody's done to themselves if that's what they've done. Mm -hmm. So I'm waking up on a floor, and as I'm waking up, my arm is coming out from the elbow up to my hand slowly till it comes out, and that's what then I'm looking at. Yeah. So I woke up to this hand coming out going, oh, my God, freaking out. What happened here? I got shocked. And I looked at my hand, and it was covered in, like, spit and part of bile it was down deep in my stomach so I assume and I was very freaked out I was scared I was upset um, I've never had anything like that happen to me obviously uh, I'm a performer uh, you know my brain is having done drugs over the course of a couple of years touring I'm just assuming that something uh, odd happened that I tripped out but it gets weirder so I call my, my band, and I say to my band, I need you to come to my room. I've never asked them to come hang out with me. I used to hang out with them. I'd go buy them food, you know, get them a drink after a show, but I didn't drink. So they typically didn't hang out with me. There were young guys out in the road having a good time. Mm. I was the guy just trying to make, you know, as much money as possible. So here I was. I needed them. 
and I called them, and they all heard in my voice something that made them realize, okay, this is serious. Ashley's never, yeah, don't worry, man. We'll come over, they said. So one by one, they knocked at my door. A guy named Scott Long, uh, a bagpiper, and Ed Woodsworth, a bass player from Cape Breton. All these musicians came to my room. I sat with them. We got in a hot tub. Uh, we discussed, you know, how weird it was that I had thought I had this experience and you're going to be okay, Ashley, they said. And, you know, after about an hour and a half, I go, thanks, guys. You've really made me comfortable. And they left, and I proceeded to my bedroom uh, and got into the bed. When I got into the bed, I took a scribbler of paper and I started writing. Uh, the TV was on mute. Uh, I believe CNN was on. And I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and rolled over and went to bed. When I woke up the next morning, I looked at what I wrote. And, of course, like one of those crazy, you know, you don't know what you wrote if you were smoking pot trying to make a song afterwards make sense type things. I looked at it and mm -hmm. said, what's this garbage? I closed my scribbler. Then about a week later, I was in New York City doing a show. Um and we were on our way out from the Newark airport. At the Newark airport, I picked up the New York Post, and I opened it up, and on page two or page three, word for word was this story that I had written that night. Huh. And the girl is sitting across from me is a very famous dancer, sister to the lead of Riverdance, a girl named Kara Butler. And I said, Kara, remember what I showed you in the van that day uh, that I had wrote? Take a look at this paper. And she looked at it, and you know, she went white. And uh, I said, yeah, this is crazy. This means something. And that night, I all of a sudden started remembering things. The memories, I, the memories that I have are images of being on a ship. Uh, I've come to conclude if it was real that I somehow didn't leave my hotel room, that some sort of copy of me was there. And if I did, I guess I went right through the ceiling and went wherever it was the ship took me. It seemed very far away. I have images of uh, two aliens. I have images of me being on a gurney. Uh, I have full, clear images of after the procedure that they were obviously going to do on me that I don't remember, just the lead up to it. Uh, I have images of me looking out the window of a ship and then uh, the younger one pointing out to me what I then seen later in a book as uh, a picture from the Hubble or something or some satellite of the Milky Way, which I had no idea what that looked like. Uh, that was being pointed out to me, I assumed, as, like, that's where you're from. Um, and then I don't have any other images. But with having had experiences that I had when I was young, uh, seeing ships, um, from all the sci-fi that we watch and assume and the, the stories that people tell about their own abductions, if I was abducted that night and what I saw was real, man, they had some compassion because they didn't kill me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not so scared of that if it was true. Wow. It, the, the piece of writing that you talked about, it, you, what was it? Like, what, what was it that you had wrote about? Was it like a story or like a news article? Like, what was no, it that it, was written it was, a, it was an editorial style, style news article about a man named Rupert Murdoch, who I'd never heard of and had no idea before or after for some long time about his connection to... Uh, society and his ownership of satellites and Fox Media and all this stuff. It was a story that was an editorial that I wrote that was about, and it started out basically like this. This is a real wild thing to say because I, I can't even say it because it sounds almost an anti-Semitic. Um, I, I think Rupert Murdoch is Jewish. 
Is he not? I, I I know the name, but I don't know anything about him. I'm not sure either. But you know, if if, it, if he was, it would sound that, and it wasn't meant to be that way. But the way it was written was something to the effect of that he was the modern day Hitler with his ownership of news and control and this sort of thing. It was this odd article that had no idea what I was writing or who this person I was writing was about. And here I'm finding the story in some editorial on page three or page four of the New York Post. Wow. And so the whole notion of it is very weird. Yeah. So, so what do you make of it? So as far as you like, it could all be a figment of your imagination, but course, at the same time, like when if you, the, think you know, of, if the science is there, Jordan, that says that this possibly could happen, that one could mm-hmm. travel at the speed of light and be somewhere else in a ship and be operated on by, you know, aliens and then sent back. If the science is, is, is possible, which we believe there's science that could say that could be possible. Mm-hmm. Um, then the science of it being just an imagination is really simple. And of course it could be that too. Uh, I know that things that I've experienced in life have not been hallucinations or imaginations that are paranormal. That Mm -hmm. particular experience that I described, whether or not it was an abduction, it fits the classic Mm storyline, but it also fits other storylines. You know, it fits uh, the guy's a crazy guy who's a musician who runs around and smokes pot and does magic mushrooms. You know, there's, there's no reason not to be, uh, diligent in in thinking about it and I know the difference between a dream and a memory and definitely you can even remember your dreams very vividly but to me this was a memory that all of a sudden came through to me that was of that experience and it, it really threw me off when I all of a sudden had the flashes of these actual experiences having had take place and they only they only came to you well after the fact, like days later. After uh, longer, longer, longer. Yeah, you know, by the time that I started visualizing that, that's what had taken place that night. Um, it, it was strange. So you know, it's the type of thing that you'd have to take with a grain of salt. I definitely do. Mm-hmm. I don't take with a grain of salt having seen a ship over my trees as a kid, or multiple ones with other community members. And I don't take with a grain of salt in the last four years where I live in Windsor, Ontario, having for the first time seen what people describe as an orb or a, uh, you know, like a, a sphere floating through the sky with plasma in it. These things have been showing up a lot, and I actually believe what I saw was totally something UFO, maybe even possible biological. Who knows what the universe can, can give us. Um, but as far as the experience in '96. Yeah, I'll leave that one for the, the viewer to decide, as they say. I I, I believe it, um, but I believe it with all the, the notions that I bring to that story, too, which is, yeah. you know, there's, there's lots of reasons to go, uh, okay, but we're in a weird time right now. Mm-hmm. For, me to, to, for me to spend my time to speak publicly about stuff that I, I find is not necessarily appetizing um, to some segment of society, I'll tell you why. I'm 45 years old. I get no reason not to speak my truth. And that's that's been your way. It seems your whole career, uh, for better or worse, it seems like you haven't really put on much of a much of an act and faked much for people. You no, know, I actually have for a lot of years been an entertainer and performer, and it's always an act. Each night you go out and you put on a show, and and you you try and make people not assume that you did the show last night or that anything is more special than what you're doing right then. But when it comes to talking about my personal life, why would anybody ever be ashamed of their personal life if they aren't 
uh, doing things that are hurtful to people or, uh, you know, harm themselves in any real detrimental way. I've had my experiences with harming myself in, in bad ways. I, I did, you know, the, the rock and roll lifestyle is doing drugs when I was young. Um, I spent excessive amounts of monies on cars and houses and, and took, you know, friends around the world. Done all those things that one could say are, you know, harmful or, or rock star or, you know, some would argue extraordinary, like things that are fun to do. Nothing's been more extraordinary than just being a regular person that everybody wakes up in the morning and looks at and sees himself in the mirror and goes, okay, what's next? And some of the experiences I've had from the past, yeah, they've been pretty paranormal. Yeah, and when you think of these sightings as a child, this experience in 96, do, do they all seem to you to be positive or do you see them as you know a scary yeah. event? Like when you have these visions, do you remember yeah. being scared or, or, or positive? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the thoughts and, and when you use the word visions, it makes one think about actual visions. And, and like I say about this story about thinking that I actually seen what an alien looks like, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, if those are visions, they still didn't scare me. So the, the the things of importance in in UFO sightings that I've experienced were when I was a kid, and here recently that I saw these other things to think, yeah, no, that wasn't an imagination when you were a kid, and it probably wasn't an imagination when you were, you know, 21 years old either. But it definitely isn't an imagination what you're seeing right now. So mm -hmm. saw them uh, very recently and thought, cool, lucky yeah. me, you know. Yeah, tell me about that because I, I I saw you writing about this and you described it as what you've been witnessing recently to, to almost appear biological. What, describe what what you've seen and what you saw and where. I got on one telephone, which is obviously is, it's not charging now. Or I've had it already set up. It's an old phone from a few years ago, close to where I live. After having seen a few months before that, um, an orange orb like light traveling fairly slow and controlled from a quite a distance that I was driving my car washed in the city overhead late at night um, about seven whatever amount of months it was later um, went out one night to grab a pizza at my local Domino's and when I parked in the parking lot another gentleman had just parked and the two of us witnessed this thing that had traveled quite slowly and controlled and stopped and came over basically three four hundred feet above the Domino's not so high that it, it was big enough that we could still distinguish exactly what it was in that late dusk evening, you know, about 8.30 on a, a summer night where it's not totally evening evening yet, but it's getting to be dusk. And we saw this sphere that had to be, I was gauging from where I'm sitting right now, like maybe 9 to 10 feet in, you know, from the top to bottom and left to right, this big mm -hmm. ball sphere that you could see through. And was basically clear but in the center had a, a an six to eight foot length and maybe two feet wide clearly you know it was large plasma running from the bottom to the top this looking fire moving through it that was like plasma wow. and it just sat there and we watched this thing it had to have been a couple of minutes at least uh, before it then darted off in the back way and you know went out of focus and the guy looked at me and I was like, yeah, I know what it is. And he said, I do too. I've seen them when I was young. I've seen a ship or seen something. You know, he he was a believer. And so to have seen this and, and now to see online so many people capturing these orange-looking orbs 
that on my phone when I, I tried to film it in the sky, you just get a little dot on your screen, right? Yeah. And, you know, light goes a certain way. I've seen some good footage on YouTube of people in North Carolina, people in uh, maybe Denver, certain areas that have, have filmed them in the last number of years. I'd never, <laughs> excuse me, really heard of this sort of golden orb or, or red orb type of ship before. But when I seen it, I thought, that ain't something that we're making. Hmm. Interesting. Now, where this has been in kind of a, a thread throughout your life, like you've seen them as a child, you've seen them throughout your life. Did, did it merge ever with your artistic life? Like, is there any piece of work you've done that was maybe inspired by it? None. Go figure. None. I've, I've used my emotions of, of experiences that I believe I've had with, you know, other weird paranormal things to to make me feel myself culturally like, you know, the Scottish guy from the woods that saw a ghost and probably played some traditional Celtic music with feelings that had some darkness in it because of that. But UFOs don't seem to have had any effect on, on my sense or the type of music I'd want to make or how I feel as, as uh, an individual, which is odd. Hmm. You'd think they would. Yeah. Well, what about this though? You're you're a major public figure. You're a celebrity. To connect yourself with the UFO phenomenon, like there there is some risk there. Like, how do you feel about coming out? Like, well, here's the stigma. Here's the stigma in my mind. The stigma will always be that a non-believer uh, will think that there's there's not much validity or even a chance of validity to the story, and then they can take the leap anywhere they want. The person's crazy, they're cuckoo, they were on pot, uh, whatever they want to go, whatever angle they can take, or they can just say, yeah, whatever, that's that kooky person. But to me, that real stigma of non-believership is, is, is not something that matters to me when it comes to UFOs. I believe what I believe, and I don't try to convince anybody of anything. We are at a point where there's an awful lot of people that uh, have been historically important figures in culture, uh, the defense minister for a long period of time in Canada, mm -hmm. you know, about his stories and oh, what yeah. he believes. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, the, the Pentagon releases recently. Um, and then historically, you know, everybody from astronauts to ancient Indian uh, deity writers, you know, people who wrote those old religious texts. Lots of people have believed uh, that there was outerworldly beings that aren't from here that possibly have came here. So if the stigma is one that I have to be considered uh, a heretic in that sense, I'm fine with that. Hmm. No. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't paint myself as a normal, uh, you know, a physician or a lawyer or whatever. I'm a musician. I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to deal with a lot of stigmas around um, what musicians are. Me, I just see myself in the morning like anybody else does. I get up. And my job happens to be making music. Um, and the stigma that would go as a professional musician that's in the public, you know, I perform for events for famous politicians when they died. I've performed for the Queen. Uh, I've performed for the strippers. It, it really doesn't matter to me. I'm a musician. And uh, if people feel for some reason what I have in my experiences to say is my personal experience and my take on what I believe is to be true and, and people say well that guy is just way too far off the deep end for us to consider hiring him as a musician I don't think that'd be the case that wouldn't be the first musician that you know, was thought to be kooky and believed in aliens yeah and I guess uh, in 
given like your your colorful history throughout the years, like I, I don't think this will be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But I think well, you, you know, uh, I, I I'd be more concerned than to say that that people would uh, find it, you know, rather blasé. It's you know, mm-hmm. like whatever. That's just something that this crazy guy says. Yeah, he was in the news for smoking pot. Yeah, he has a boyfriend. Yeah, he did that. Yeah, he did this. Mm-hmm. Like it could be taken that way. And for me, it is a, a pretty big. Uh, large step to put onto the audio file somewhere to say this is what I believe and this is what I, I look at in my past experiences and go that's part of my life mm-hmm. um, including the stuff that I'm not certain about right yeah um, and and then to have people then not take it as me just being honest I'd be surprised because you know yeah there's no I, reason not to be yeah I, I agree a hundred percent now the average person even the believers out there aren't fortunate enough to have had multiple experiences and sightings. Why do you think, like, if there is a reason they've decided to show themselves to you multiple times, why do you think that would be? Like, why Ashley McIsaac? Well, I would think I would think one would have to be very arrogant and have a large ego to think that there's any reason that one particular creature that's being studied, be it a, a cow that's being, uh, its guts cut out, or a human being that thinks they've been abducted, I don't think we'd have any say uh, in who would get picked. So, you know, that's ego speaking. Mm-hmm. Why one has the opportunity to see things? Maybe it's just happenstance. You just happen to be in a certain place at a certain time. Mm-hmm. Sorry to pull you away from the episode, but I want to take a moment to thank the subscribers of the Nighttime Premium feed, as it's their support that makes this show possible. If any of you listening enjoy Nighttime and aren't subscribed to the premium feed, let me take a quick moment and explain what you're missing. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can subscribe to a different podcast feed in which the episodes are posted earlier than here in the free feed and are done without any advertising. But there's more benefits to the premium feed than simply better versions of the free content. The premium feed also includes post-show discussions and a variety of additional content that will take you even further into the rabbit holes. So if you got a couple dollars to pitch in towards the creation of Nighttime, the premium feed is for you. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. So with that said, again, a huge thanks to all subscribers to the premium feed and a thank you to everyone else listening for considering it. Now, let's get back to the episode. We're going to start wrapping it up, but where, where we started talking about your, your career and your music, let, we'll end with that. So why don't you tell us what's next for for you musically what's uh, I, I knew you do, you were doing the quarantine Kaylee's is that still happening or what's next we did yeah well we did online a couple of these shows on you know the Ashley McIsaac Facebook site uh-huh. you could go on and, and, and click from there um, it is a different time of touring there'll be some festivals I'm doing uh, that are you know online only yeah uh, I have some Christmas stuff I'm doing in theaters you know they I'd regularly play a, a thousand, twelve hundred seat theater, but now they're down to like three or four hundred seats they can sell. So I'll do a few of those larger theaters. And uh, the next thing, I don't know. I mean, I would imagine next year is a time that'll be very interesting to see what happens with the industries that have been shut out of, you know, the initial reopening phases. Mm-hmm. And that's been everything from tourism to. You know, uh, the hotel industry to musicians and artists and promoters and and this sort of thing. So 
where it leads in the next year, oh, you, one has to figure out. But I'm never too worried about uh, where next year comes because if you've had an experience that you believe is paranormal, you're just happy to get to the next day, wake up in the morning and say, hi, old world, let's try her again. <laughs> Good way to look at it. Well, that was just awesome. I don't know if you could tell during the interview, but I'm a huge fan of Ashley McIsaac, and I was more than a bit starstruck throughout that interview. You also may have noticed I wasn't able to use any of Ashley's music in the episode, so let me take a moment and recommend some tracks for you to check out before we finish up. A good spot to start would be his biggest hit, Sleepy Maggie. But my personal favorite tune is an instrumental track called MacDougall's Pride, it's a collaboration between Ashley and another famous Cape Breton musician, Gordy Sampson. But Ashley has a lot of great stuff, and not all of it is fiddle-based. He did an indie rock-sounding album called Pride. A track on that, called Bitch, is a real earworm. But, sadly, Ashley McIsaac has yet to write a concept album about his UFO abduction. But hopefully he finds the time to do it. I honestly couldn't imagine a more interesting artist to tackle that. And with that, I'm going to start wrapping up this episode. But before we do, I want to end with thanks. First, a massive thank you to Ashley McIsaac for choosing Nighttime as his venue to share such amazing and compelling stories. Ashley, it truly is an honor to have you on the show. And also, most importantly, a huge thank you to all the listeners of Nighttime. Without your interest and support, Nighttime would have seen the light of day many moons ago. But with that said, this battle is still raging on, and I need as many of you as possible to have my back on this. So if you want to help keep this show rolling, let me recommend the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it gives you more of each topic than you'll find here on the free feed. Shortly after the release of this episode, the post-show nightcap episode will be released exclusively on the premium feed. In that discussion between my pal Randy and I, we'll get into Ashley's career and the interesting way this episode came to be. I hope you check that out. And now, with me having mentioned the premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. David and Tina, thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by simply liking and sharing the episodes across social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if anyone out there has any story ideas or just want to give feedback on the show, you can reach me at NighttimePodcast.com slash contact. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. One other thing, I was really happy to see you in the news for being the first to buy legal weed in Cape Breton. You, you like, lined up or something? I did line up for that. Canada had uh, finally legalized it nationally, and the event was, to me, an event. You know, so many years people had talked about wanting pot legalized. I'm not somebody who smokes it the way I once did, but I smoked a lot of pot and I'd always wished it was legal. So I lined up and I got some news for that because I was the first guy and you know, I was the musician asking guys. 
Oh yeah, but it was it was a perfect time for you to just kind of pop your head out and be like, yeah, I'm gonna, I'll be the first one to do it. When I saw that article, I was like, that is such a Ashley McIsaac uh, thing to have done. <laughs>